came in. Immigrants are a lot of immigrants. Yeah. It's the dog. I could, I could bay. Like if it's the in card is your bay ears. Tonight we are doing a very special recording as it is Pride Month themed. And we are having a very fun discussion all about a very special pride centered film, The Birdcage, which was a French play that then was made into a 1978 Franco-Italian film, which then went on to have some sequels. And then it was made into a musical with Harvey Firestein doing the book, the wonderful great Harvey Firestein doing the book. And then, and also George Hearn was the original Albin in that Mr. Sweeney taught himself. And then you have this film, which we're going to be talking about tonight, which is the 1996 film, The Birdcage, Directed by Mike Nichols, adapted by Elaine May, and starring Robin Williams, Gene Hackman, Nathan Lane, Diane Weiss, Dan Fetterman, Calissa Flockhart, Hank Azaria, and Christine Baranski. I mean, talk about a star-studded 90s cast. Oh, I know. Yes. And joining me on this deep dive into the world of Coldman Goldman, the birdcage drag experiences, you know, Fosse, 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 Marsha Graham, Marsha Graham, Marsha Graham. <laughs> Madonna, Madonna, you know, all that good stuff. Michael Kidd, Michael Kidd, Michael Kidd. But we keep, keep it all inside. inside. <laughs> keep it all inside, friends. Yes. But yes, so joining me, we have a returning face from our previous Pride episode, all about the musical Company in concert with Neil Patrick Harris. It is the wonderful Graham McClelland. So Graham, oh. welcome. Tell us what's in your cup and how did you come to this film? So wonderful to be back. I am currently drinking a bit of sherry. I believe it's Spanish sherry because I just thought it was to be, I want something sweet today because this film is such a sweet part of my Mm. memory. I remember I originally came to this film because my parents showed it to me like years ago when I was a kid. Oh, Because they were like, this is such a fun movie. These are great performances, amazing actors, and like you should definitely watch it. So mm-hmm. I've loved The Birdcage like years before I even knew I was mm-hmm. queer, years before I even knew what gay was. The Birdcage was just an incredible film. And it's like, it was, so yeah, it's, it's, when I got the chance to rewatch it and now the chance to talk about it, I leapt at the opportunity. I love that. I love that. And coming back from his wonderful star turn interview with our associate producer Jillian Robinson all about TYT theater it is the wonderful Logan Hickey hello Logan hello hello welcome back sir we got a panel of Yorkies here right we're all York grads and look we're making a podcast together exactly I mean me I'm like an honorary York grad (laughs) (laughs) okay that's fair you were there in spirit you were there in spirit. That's it's okay. Right. You got out when it was the correct time to get out. <laughs> exactly. I think exactly. Mackenzie and I are both masochists. It's fine. We stayed till the very end, man. Yeah. I took those beatings. I took those fuckings. <laughs> I mean, so, I Logan, always wondered what it was like if I would have stayed, but you know what? <laughs> we, can tell you after the, we can tell you afterwards. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, Logan, tell us, what's in your cup tonight, and how did you come to this film? Well, what's in my cup is a Ontario cider from Thornbury Craft Co. Ooh. It is my... Oh, come on. Don't there blur you. it. Let's go. There, there we go. go. Yep. I think you there got it. Flash yep. enough. Yeah. It is a wild blueberry elderflower apple cider. It is an Love Ontario it. brewery. And it is something I discovered just a few weeks ago. And mm. it is delicious. Yes. You can get it I at most LCBOs if you go hunting for it. Mm. Interesting. And how'd you come to this film? 
How did I come to this film? I came to it a little bit later probably than Graham did because I had already come out. I was in, I think, even in university. It was when I just began looking into songs to perform that were LGBTQ. And I came upon La Cage au Fall. I had previously not known about La Cage. And then I learned of The Birdcage through my research into La Cage. And of course, fell in love with it, which is why I jumped at the opportunity to be on this episode. Love You that. can't jump at the opportunity. I already did that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we all could be jumping for joy for this film. <laughs> I definitely hey. am. Yes. And for me tonight, I am drinking... What am I drinking tonight? It is a mango passion fruit crystal light. Ooh. And I came to this film. So how did I come to this now? I'm trying to think about it. It was <laughs> my friend's mom. She knew I loved Nathan Lane as a performer because we had just watched The Producers. Another which, good one. Which is fantastic. That is such a fun, fun, fun piece where he plays the terrific devious Max Bialystok mm -hmm. and she and her were going through his filmography because Nathan Lane is more than just Timon from Lion King as many people know him for he's done a plethora of work and she said well have you ever seen the birdcage I said no what's the birdcage she's like well you gotta watch it's got Robin Williams and Nathan Lane and you know Gene Hackman Diane Weist and it's one of those things where it's like you gotta check it out and you know even though I am straight it's like this film just spoke to me because I because I mean, I love theater. I am in theater. And so mm. Nathan Lane, Rob Williams and just the story of acceptance and love, yeah. like unfettered, undying love and what and the lengths you will go because you love someone was what really spoke to me about this piece more than anything else. And the thing is, like this premise is something that's been reinvented so many times of mm -hmm. meet the in-laws. I mean, you can, go, you can all, go all the way back to Sidney Poitier with guess who's coming to dinner, right? Like, the, like that premise has continued on about, about kind of meeting the in-laws and then trying to change yourself or adapt yourself mm -hmm. to fit that mold, you know? So it's one of those things where the premise always worked, but this has always been kind of been my favorite version of that premise because of how strong the cast is. And the great kind of work that's done with this ensemble casting. It really so is me, a I, superstar cast for it a really movie is. that I just don't think gets enough appreciation. It does. And I mean, like, people always talk about Robin Williams with like Good Will Hunting and Aladdin and, and Mrs. Um, Doubtfire. Uh, Mrs. Uh, Doubtfire. What's some of the ones he did? Insomnia, One Hour Photo, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Flubber. Yeah. Oh, gosh, Flubber. Another yeah. underrated Robin Williams. Another underrated one. But, you know, <laughs> This is one where people always forget that he did this. And it's like, it's so good. I mean, the fact that he was supposed to play Albert originally, mm. but then he wanted to play Armand instead. And it's like, of course, that totally works. Yep. You know, it's just totally, it's such a great film. So yes, that's how I came to it was things. And then of course I found it, <laughs> excuse me. And then of course we found out later that it was a musical mm -hmm. with my favorite Sweeney Todd, George Hearn. Oh, he's As great. the OG Albin. And so I automatically bought the CD and, you know, I am what I am. It's like an anthem for everybody to just own who you are. And so that piece has always spoken to me. And so, yeah, I mean, I just love it. I love it. I love this story in all its iterations. It's just such a juicy piece of art mm -hmm. that everybody can keep sinking their teeth back into. So love it. But let's get into our general thoughts about the film. First of all, because we're going to dive deeper into the cast and production elements and things like that. <clears throat> but let's just kind of give our overall impressions of 
the film itself. So, Logan, yeah. what are your general thoughts about the film and Mike Nichols' um, adaptation of it? The first one, after rewatching it, after doing a lot of like learning and educating myself over the years, I've realized just how outdated those certain aspects of it are. So that's sort yep. of my first thing is I cringed more <laughs> on my latest watch through than I remember cringing before, just based on a lot of you know racial stereotypes and things that are worn costumes in the show that yep. people probably shouldn't, et cetera, et cetera. But the story itself always moves me every time I just get great joy watching it. And I think it is such an interesting parallel to what's happening right now in conservative politics, where right now in conservative politics, there's a lot of politicians who are calling drag queens pedophiles and who mm. then are having scandals themselves. Some of them even being exposed as pedophiles. You know, it's never the tra drag queens. It always seems to be the right wing people yep. in the states yep. who are being exposed. And so something like that, where in this play, film, slash movie that sort of premise of that scandal around the politician mm -hmm. and specifically in the movie adaptation where it's the politician who you know is in a scandal with an underage yeah. sex worker no um, his partner sandra key yeah uh, sorry uh, it's Sandra keely is gene hackman and his partner yes yes his part it's his partner for the coalition of moral order that's who right. dies in the bed of an underage black teenage, <laughs> uh, black sex worker yeah so yeah. it's like that that <laughs> That scandal is so relevant to right yeah. now, what's happening yes. in politics. So it was kind of neat to rewatch it and yeah, cringe at some parts, but then seeing how much is just still relevant today, it's, yes. it was fantastic to rewatch. Yeah. Agreed, agreed. Graham? I can pretty much echo everything Logan just said, but it was refreshing <laughs> to go back and see it now that I've completed a master's and a theater degree and done all this re reading into queer theory and the political and like implications of art and mm -hmm. like again th were there some problematic costumes worn absolutely were the casting choices the best not only for like identity but also sexuality yes but in terms of the relevance of the story being told and in terms of what it depicts in terms of mm -hmm. a queer relationship which mm -hmm. i would say is fairly healthy and like we can debate that if you know later <laughs> if we want but like i view it as pretty a pretty healthy depiction of a queer relationship i also like that we've kind of flipped it flipped the traditional film structure on its head a little bit in that normally you would think that you have you start with the very like straight-laced ordinary family which mm. in this case is the keelys mm -hmm. that then get their world invaded by the kooky <laughs> strange characters where we then like comic comedic structure the world begins in order and devolves into disorder mm -hmm. and then we get back to order at the end which is you know the kind of double-edged sword of art and that you can depict something as being radically different but also still acceptable yeah. but then at the end of the story we still have to go back to kansas we still have to leave the, yeah. the world and go back to the way things were because of course order has to be restored right mm -hmm. but i love that we have this colorful cast of characters who we feel are being invaded by the like stick in the mud keelys who are just walking contradictions i love diane weist weist talking about senator jackson and how like in the first scene you see they're talking about how it was such a good decision to side with senator jackson instead over of the bob dole <laughs> yeah. over bob dole yeah. and how like like 
how they're like this, they're together, this coalition for moral order. But then the very <laughs> next scene, alone. the very, oh, we'll get into it. <laughs> I, I could rant because it is very topical right now. Um, <laughs> there, there are more anti-queer bills presented right now than there were back yep. in like 1969. And it just blows oh, my yeah. mind. But then she turns around and is like, oh, surely, surely they don't judge us for associating with Senator Jackson. We had nothing to do with him socially. Like he was a common redneck. Like yeah. to, to, to switch between the two scenes, I cackled <laughs> because it's so I what I love about the Keeley storyline in general is how constructed the political world is and how everything is publicists and how the narrative is always mm-hmm. swung a certain way. Yeah, exactly. It's about, the spin. it's about the spin. And that really it's really shown not and both sides are showing how it's about the spin yep. and mm-hmm. trying to weave their own narrative. And so I really love that amidst all of this chaos, we are seeing a story that is ultimately about love and acceptance. And that while I still think there are some elements of this piece that make it a bit of a problem play, mm-hmm. and by that I just mean a story where the narrative thrust is driven by intolerance and discrimination. If you were to remove homophobia from the world of the story, there is no play. Like there is no story because you yeah. know it's like then it's just a drama meeting the parents and that's a very different story than what the birdcage tells because while it is a meeting the parents story it's like it's all like oh we have to change the way we are because these straight conservative in-laws are coming to visit yep. so so but so it's a story about homophobia and the di- dichotomy between homosexual and heterosexual life and if you were to remove homophobia, the story would kind of be like, well, it's lost that edge. It can it, still it lose it, some. Yes. Yeah. So is it a problem play? Yes. But does it end better than most? Yes. If anyone knows the children's hour, I could go on endlessly about <laughs> that play and how bad. Oh, I've written so many papers on that play. <laughs> that yeah. Could... So there, I'll end there. Yeah. <laughs> No, I mean, once again, I'm going to echo everybody where this film is of a time, 1996, where our views on yeah. certain casting and costume choices were very different from from our 2023 yes, lens. Very, very different. Yeah. But at the same time, as you pointed out, the story is still extremely topical. And I think Mike Nichols has done a beautiful job of creating a very timeless story using a very well-trodden trope of meet the in-laws and giving yep. it a very timeless message because as much as we would all love for there to be no homophobia everybody accepts that in the world it's still unfortunately as Grim pointed out there are still many there's more bills today yep. than there were in 69 you know so the fact that this is still such a hot topic says right there that maybe we haven't come as far as we would have liked in in, in over two decades, you know? So it's one of those tragic, it's a sad thing, but it also this is a, as Graham and I talked about with Company, a comedy is a great subversive way to get in a very dramatic message yep. without making the audience feel like they're being bashed over the head and made to feel bad. Because nowadays we have to be conscious of people's guilt, apparently. But we're talking about topics in history. Don't get me started on that. It's a conversation there. I feel like we all have things that we should just not get wound up about. <laughs> no, no. The goal is focused on this very good film. I will say Mike Nichols did a, a much better job in his version of balancing out the couples. Like if you watch Lacage or the play, 
it's much more focused on the Albert and Armand mm-hmm. partnership. And then it's kind of like the other parents just show up and the dinner unfolds the way it does. Yeah. But here, what made it great is because they're so balanced, you can see that the couples actually mirror each other, where Robin Williams and Diane Weiss characters are kind of the grounded, tactile, plotting ones, mm-hmm. while Nathan Lane and Gene Hackman's characters are much more of the dramatic, overly dramatic, kind of a little bit self-centered, you know? Yeah. Self-focused characters who kind of need to be grounded by their partner. So once again, it shows that no matter what the dynamic or who you choose to love, there are still very similar partnerships in the world. Like it doesn't matter who your partner is. There's always going to be a similar dynamic. There's in always, co- yeah. You know, it's very like type A, type B, right brain, mm-hmm. left brain. Exactly. And it's one of those things that it doesn't matter who your partner is. It's just, you know, people connect on that. And that's the whole joke is when Gene Hackman is following infatuately and enthralled with Nathan <laughs> Lane because he thinks she's a woman. But it's like, no, they're actually connecting on similar values with each other. You know, so it's one of those things where like, you know, that's the like, that's the joy of this piece. So I do like Mike Nichols doing that and giving both couples the balance Mm -hmm. and showing that Mm -hmm. they're both flawed, non-perfect couples, you know. And I also, there's one line in Lacage that makes, that I'm glad didn't make it into this, which is where after Albin and Armand, Albin and George have, revealed the truth and you know everybody's kind of stuck in the room and, and we find out there's reporters outside and man says i'll help the keelys or whatever their couple's name is, the other couple's name is to escape yeah but it says you know at christmas thanksgiving new year's whatever and the guy's like yeah so she's like please don't come and it's like i was like that one doesn't work so well because that just is now spinning the intolerance of not opening the doors yeah the other way around where it's like what I like about this is at the end, you have Nathan Lane taking Gene Hackman under his wing when he goes, nobody's dancing with me. I'm in a white outfit. I feel fat. You know, I'm being left all alone. And Nathan <laughs> Lane shows up and does the let's dance, you know, and gets him out the door. And it's like, it's much more of a coalescing of we're not going to exclude you, but we're not, well, I'm probably not going to be chums. You know, we're yeah. not going to be having coffee every weekend. We're going to be friendly in-laws, though, to each other. You know, we'll see each other at the odd Christmas or the Thanksgiving when we do a united celebration. But it's going to be one of those things of you hope that as time goes on, maybe Senator Keeley and um, I, th- I think Mrs. Keeley is already pretty much on board with Robin and Nathan over there. But I, I hope that he softens a bit and maybe just comes to accept his in-laws for who they are and doesn't get quite befuddled by the as he does during the first reveal. But yeah. that's the thing there where I felt this was a much better ending for the couplings where it wasn't so much of, okay, we had this one night together. Let's never see each other again. It's like, no, no, we're going to see each other again. Let's, you know, find, try and find common ground of our kids both love each other. They want to be together. We're going to make it work because we love our kids. And whatever way that is, whatever, we, whatever dynamic that is, that will be the way it's going to go. So that, those are my thoughts on the film anyway. It definitely gives it a very positive spin. Yes. Which I'm like, that's, I mean, I mean, in this day and age, positive is never a bad thing. It's nice to have mm-hmm. a bit of an optimistic outlook and go, look, it is possible to get along with, with people who you may not 100% all the time agree with. Well, know? and it's political and pointed without being too in your face and yes. still having that fun comedic ending. Exactly. You know, the wedding like the, is one of my favorite scenes. <laughs> yeah, the wedding, the wedding at the end is also yeah. the perfect like little moment of like, you can see that they still came together, 
Yes. But there's also that commentary of like her side's like, who the hell is that? Like, are those fabulous people over there? Yes. And then there's an extra next to that woman who looks dead. Yes. Because Roger just like sitting there like wide eyed. I love it. She doesn't blink. It's a perfect extra for that. I thought you were using another F word when you were like leaning out for fabulous. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I was reaching for a word and then changed my mind. Yes. I love that. Well, let's get into the main couple, though, because we've talked about the film in general, but let's talk about the performances of Nathan Lane and Robin Williams as Albert and Armand. Graham, why don't you start? So, Are they I, a healthy couple? Do you believe that they are a good match for each other? See, I personally believe they are a very good match for each other, and I like the very much believe that these two men love each other as I watch this film and love doesn't mean what we see in tv shows and movies now where the queer couple seems to be this perfect couple that always gets along (laughs) and they never have a bad day and like there are some tv shows that have definitely like sidestepped that like i remember the show please like me did a great job of showing Mm -hmm. some like highs and lows of queer love i did enjoy that show like it, it was just like it showed a lot of different types of relationships and great examples all around. But a lot of queer love stories are either like right now are either like it's all happy or it's all tragedy and there's no in between. Like in like I think about in the show Elite, the queer couples are either like super like tragic or then we hit some really happy periods where it almost seems like nothing is going wrong. Other than like the drama around, but the couple itself is healthy. But whereas with Albert and Armin, they make fun of each other. They sometimes disagree. They have full on fights. They yell and scream at each other. And it's kind of done in a comedic way. But those things happen for queer relationships the same way they happen for straight relationships. Mm -hmm. And I like that there is still this moment of like, okay, we may be separate in like what we're feeling right now but we always come back together and we always like make up and i still choose you at the end of the day so i find that to be a very healthy depiction of intimacy in general as much as there's heartbreak to to the movie as well and to the plot as well there's just a lot of positive support there i find and choosing each other through thick and thin in a healthy way you know, there's the horribly, almost soul-crushing moment where Armand says something in the lines of, and I'm going to paraphrase, you know, he's my companion and my friend. So I, like, I, I basically, like, I'm choosing him because he's my companion and my friend. Like, he's just so sincere. He never needs to say he's my lover or my partner or my husband. It's just, this is the person who is my companion and my chosen mm-hmm. family. And I just think they have very sweet moments. And they understand each other's eccentricities and see each other's eccentricities as they are without judgment, I think. Like, obviously, there's moments where you're like, oh, LOL, he's indulging the other one. But you can see that they support each other throughout the film. Yeah, I mean, when I watch these two, I automatically see the template that the Modern Family writers took for Mitch and Cam. Mm-hmm. Like there's so much in there, like, 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 like in that duo that you can go back, trace them back to the 1996 Nathan yep. and Robin Williams. Pressure. They are the template for you know the 
kind of what we would deem as like kind of like the modern interpretation of a coupling, right? Where you're like, you know, they're not perfect. Mm-hmm. They, they're quippy with each other, you know, they kind of bicker back and forth, but deep down they have a love. And I will say Robin Williams in this is really the standout performance because he plays it so grounded and he really plays the love of this. Like the palimony yep. scene on the bench is the scene where I go, this is like, this is the, I don't know, did, did Google Hunting come before or after this? I think it comes after. I think it comes years. after, yeah. Yeah, but this is like the early things of, you know, Rob Williams can do drama when he wants to. Like when he is talking about giving up his gravesite in Las Copa to come down <laughs> to, to wherever yep. his gravesite is, like, it's a marriage because because back then there was no gay marriage, you know, it, it, it wasn't what it is today. So a palomoniger was as close as people got, mm-hmm. which is tragic. But Nathan and Robbins really do play the sincerity of that couple where, you know, where like Nathan Lane is so hurt that Val doesn't want him at the dinner. It says, can't I be like Val's Uncle Al? And you see Nathan Lane's heart break. Mm-hmm. For this moment, it goes, well, of course you're going to be Uncle Al. Fuck him. We'll, we'll, we'll figure it out, you know? And then even then, when, like, Nathan Lane's being forced to dress in a suit, something that, he, like, Nathan Lane looks great in that suit, but he's so, he plays the uncomfortability and yep. the tragedy of that moment so well. And, one, and, one, of, <laughs> one of my favorite lines is in that moment where he's like, yeah. like, you're all thinking, I looking like this, I'm even more obvious, which yes. makes me made me write down like in all caps in my notes, damn if you do, damn if you don't. Exactly. Very that, very that. And then of course with the pink socks, right? And Robin's is like, <laughs> what about those? He goes, Well, somebody wants a splash of color. But you know, it's one of those things where it's just the tra like like the tragedy that Nathan Lane is trying so hard to be accepted into this. And Robin You feel the heartbreak. Also, you feel the heartbreak because Nate and Robin's when he says like I spent years hiding who I was. I have no desire to go and do this again. But then, at the, because at he, the end Robin of it all, there's powerful, powerful messages. Yeah, exactly. Like Robin Williams just nails it. And Robin, and Robin Williams was straight, but he played the heart of the character. I was and just going to say that, that if I had him. one issue with the film, it's the fact that he's straight. <laughs> Not because he does anything wrong. Mm-hmm. But because, you know, a role like that really should have been played by an LGBTQ human. But that is my only critique of him mm-hmm. playing that role at all. I find he finds the heart. He portrays love. There's not a moment where I don't believe that mm-hmm. Albert and Armand are not in love. You know what I mean? Like they connect in such an amazingly impactful way mm-hmm. that I almost forgive the fact that no i do forgive the fact that he is not lgbtq yeah like i've never been like oh they should have recast the role because like i've never mind you if robin's had played it overly flamboyant and caricaturish like hank azaria which he uh, doesn't go into yeah and he doesn't and i go like that's where i'm like if you can play the role and play it with sincerity and honesty and truth and bring the global truth of this is a loving couple Mm -hmm. and play that with heart and honesty then I'll cast you in the role because, you know, it's just like, play the part. Play the part with honesty and truth, and I will support your casting. If you come in playing it as a caricature, then I will have a problem with you and will say this was a bad casting choice. Now, if but they I mean, redid I'm, the movie today, I would say cast someone who is queer. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. Like 110%. Yeah. 
Yeah. But for the time 200%. I get it. Because they did also Mm -hmm. cast Nathan Lane, who is a gay man. Yes. Well, I mean, one of the greatest stories that came out of this movie that shows just how good Nathan Lane and Robin was on and off the camera were they were doing an interview on Oprah. And Oprah was leaning heavily into Nathan Lane, trying to get him to Mm -hmm. basically come out. Because she was asking, well, how did you like, uh, kind of like, well, how were you so good at, you know, playing put, put, put playing Albert? Like, how did you play the cross-dressing so well? Not a great moment for Oprah, let's just say. Oh, gosh. And, and Nathan Lane was very clear to Robin. He's like, I, I'm gay, but I don't want to come out publicly. Like, I, I'm not at that spot yet. And Robin saw where this interview was going and immediately did a kooky voice thing and diverted Oprah completely and spun the interview in an entirely different way. He really was and a gem of yeah. a human. Yeah, and saved Nathan Lane in that moment from having from being forced to come out when he wasn't ready. And so that's where I go. That's true partner love on and off camera, where these yep. guys formed a true partnership with each other. And you know, like when uh, like uh, Nathan Lane spoke glowingly when like Robin Williams passed away, and they interviewed him about it. Like he came mm-hmm. out and just had the most beautiful things to say. And he said he was my friend. He was someone who, who you know I kept in touch with throughout the years. Someone who I loved dearly. So for them, are they like? The perfect couple? No, but I'm like, I wouldn't want a perfect couple. I want somebody with a bit of bite, with a bit of bickering, with a bit of unevenness to it, because that's life. They're not a perfect. No, no couple is perfect. Mm-hmm. You know, they're a little I think, in and out. Yeah. I think that's something just to qualify what I said is that they're a very healthy couple. Healthy doesn't yeah. mean perfect. Like, exactly. again, media right now likes to depict yeah. that if you are in a healthy relationship, you two agree on everything. You never fight. <laughs> and that's just not true. No. Because if you're not fighting, you, I question how good of a relationship you have. Because I mean, somebody's always compromising and is not being honest. Yeah, it's yeah. It, it, it's that's why I call them a very healthy couple. Because mm-hmm. like, are they perfect? No, but do they love each other and do they commit to one another? And hundred percent. Like, yeah. like no one doubts that the entire film long. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, they are very much together and in mm-hmm. love and just kind to each other like they hold space for each other yes. and i think that's why i like that couple mm-hmm. i do i that's exactly it but it's not just them in the cast as we said this is a star studded yes cast so what are our thoughts on the rest of the cast was there anybody who stared to you cast wise logan what are your thoughts i loved i really liked the journey of oh my god her dad's name Gene Hackman? Yeah. Gene Hackman, yeah. I love his Keeley? I love how he portrayed the oh, journey Kevin of Kevin his Keeley. character. Yeah, Kevin Keeley there. And it's that he goes from being so homophobic and problematic to just the shock on his face. It's the best when confused uh, Gene Hackman ever. Yeah, when the whole reveal happens of Albert being the mo- the like a drag yeah. queen and not yes. actually the mom and yeah. Christine Baranski popping in yeah. wait like the cameo of a lifetime I love her so much <laughs> so much and that sort but of you can't be Jewish <laughs> that, I was just gonna say that line is I'm like yo I love that that's yeah. the first thing that came out <laughs> yes, of his mouth yes. uh, yeah and this in a moment of and that's what I love about it is in a moment of total shock. The thing that comes his out of his mouth is completely not what anyone thinks is going to happen. <laughs> honestly, I forgot that the first thing he says is, but you can't be Jewish until I was rewatching it. It's one of those little tidbits that just like 
blasted me in the head was just like, a, <laughs> oh my God, that's brilliant timing. Yeah. Yeah. Especially because everybody's like, you can't, you know, you think he's going to say, well, you can't be a man. It's like, yeah. oh, well, you can't be Jewish. Like, ah, <laughs> oh, I would say he, for yeah. me, just that the journey mm -hmm. he takes you on outside of the Nathan Lane, Robin Williams, I would say he's my like biggest standout. But just yeah. the, the couple there, both Keeleys are just, mm -hmm. the, again, a couple who, while their fundamental ideals are not correct i'll just say it they're not correct they're yeah. discriminatory yeah. they're problematic they're racist they're you know yeah. homophobic anti-semitic anti-semitic too oh, jesus christ very anti-semitic yeah. they but they are very supportive of each other and they balance yes. each other out so yeah. there's a certain balance you get there that mm -hmm. is is lovely mm -hmm. morals aside and, and social opinions aside mm -hmm. they really do support each other and lift each other and she anchors him mm -hmm. he's going off the rails thinking his political yeah. career is doomed and she even though she's the she, lady macbeth of the couple exactly she figures even it though out. they're in a relationship where you would think that the power was swayed the other direction you know he's got all the power because he's the man they're social mm -hmm. christians whatever you want to call it but she guides the ship yep mm -hmm. you know and she does her best mm -hmm. to sort of make sure everybody's okay mm -hmm. uh, which is also kind of nice to it as well mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll piggyback because my shout out goes to Diane Weist as mm. a, as a, as a Louise Keeley because I mean I grew up knowing her from Law and Order because she did a few seasons where she yes. was the DA the ADA for Law and Order playing Sam Waterston's boss basically mm -hmm. uh, and you know she is someone who plays who does a lot of drama she doesn't get the chance to do a lot of comedy but. She kills it in this. But when she does, uh, yeah, she does it well. Because when, when she cuts it, I mean, she plays serious quite a bit. Like, she, once again, she's the grounded partner where, you know, she's coming up with the, oh, Kevin, like, come on. Like, we got to pull this together here. Like, You've had enough candy. <laughs> You've <Yes. laughs> got enough candy. Hey, Kevin, I, don't go out the window. <laughs> I guess I love how Kevin Keeley reversed the childhood with that. Like, I just need yes. candy. I'm like, there's the emotional yeah. eating. Oh, something I go all too yeah. well. Yeah. And yeah, then, but too. then I love at the dinner where she starts getting jealous of Nathan Lane getting all the attention and that's just so funny is watching her get more and more upset yep. the way where she has her crying does that I just want someone to like me best <laughs> I guess the breakdown is great and it's just so funny and then watching her oh, yeah. come out and like kind of like the BDSM leather cap and studs at the end and then doing the and then talking to the guys where she drops her voice to sound more manly it's just so good like oh i doubt it's a role she'd ever thought she would have played no it, well that's exactly <laughs> like she like, like, like gene hackman's done comedy for like he did done frankenstein Stein where he plays the blind old man yep. you know like he, like he had done comedy before so it wasn't but he didn't he kind of played broad with lex luther and superman but he was known for doing the kind of the heavy dramas. Like I forgot Commission. about that. Yeah, yeah, ah. yeah. Gene Hackman's a, Gene has got a really storied career where he's got gone a little bit all over the map. Yep. People always forget he does comedy. Diane Weiss almost never does comedy, and so for her, I was just like, yes, like she just so wonderfully plays the tightly wound Lady M of this couple who is formulating every plan, and then as the night deteriorates, she just keeps getting more and more. A anxious and upset 
which is great. And I will say an honorable shout out goes to Dan Herman as Val. Yes. I hate that character so much. He has the most punchable face ever. The smugness when he does the dad, thank you. It's like, oh my God, could I not just sucker punch that man and break his Oh, nose? I know. He plays sort of asshole fairly well. He plays and the best asshole. He is the true antagonist of the film. What I find funny <laughs> is also, I know this actor, he was on a season of 24. Um, mm-hmm. And I remember he played an asshole on that too. And I'm like, yo, this is just young asshole, Dan Fuckerman. <laughs> and I can talk just endlessly so... about that character. Yeah. He's um, fascinating. Yes, that's one word for it. <laughs> well, fascinating and, and like, because like, infuriating kind of like, is another one. <laughs> like, infuriatingly <laughs> fascinating because it's like, you would think as the child who grew up with a gay, cu- with, with a gay couple, who showed him nothing but love, you would think he would be the most open and supportive person possible. But yep. he's not. And I almost wonder, is he going to end up like Senator Keeley being like being like a Republican senator in like 20 years when he's like in his 40s? Like, what's going on there? Like, what happened to this character to make him want to repress his family so badly? Like, what, like, what did Armand and Albert show up at his college and embarrass him? And he was in bullied <laughs> for that. Like, what happened to him off screen that makes him the way he is? Well, like, I think yeah, like I'm fascinated I, by that dynamic. Like, I think just to hop on this train of thought for a moment, yeah, because I'm kind of like torn about who my answer will be. But mm-hmm. I'll talk about Dan Fuggerman for a second. And that I think that he's very much. I think he's aware of the stigma, particularly mm-hmm. at this point in time. Because remember, this is 1996. Queerness was not widely discussed. Like, yes, or we celebrated. are celebrated. Like, oh, not at all. Like, I remember. Well, he talks I, about his teacher, like his kindergarten teacher. Like, his dad yeah. coached him to say, like, like, if your teacher asks what your dad does, tell him he's a businessman. Yeah. Yep. And so I think it's just as much as we hate Val. <laughs> as someone who is telling his fathers that you cannot be yourselves, you have to be less of, one of yourself. Don't like yeah. kick Albert out. Don't talk or gesture or move unless you absolutely have to, mm-hmm. because yep. you're just too obvious. I'm like it reads like displaying shame, and mm-hmm. that's what really breaks my heart about the film is just that it's such. The, what breaks my heart is it's completely believable. Like it's completely, oh, yeah. I completely believe that if I were to ever have kids, there might be circumstances where they'd be like, "Can you mm-hmm. tone it down?" Because there are people out there who are very much not okay with queerness, and it's kind of like when you're in a contained, accepting environment, similar to what mm-hmm. House the World of South Beach is depicted mm-hmm. in, like The Birdcage. It's hard to, it's very jarring when you're suddenly reminded that the whole world is not accepting because it's very easy. I remember seeing a meme a couple of years ago where it's like TV writers will always be like, yo, there can't be more than one queer person in a friend group. Meanwhile, (laughs) me, a homosexual, has not seen a straight person in three months. Oh, 110%. It's very true where it's like, I will insulate with only queer people and only people who accept love and support me my chosen family one could say which this film highlights a lot and i want to do a big shout out to the like one of the very early scenes where albert finds out that val's getting married when they're all in the kitchen together 
after the mm-hmm. Schneck and his beckons. Mm-hmm. Um, One of the best lines. Uh, yes. <laughs> when the uh, Schneck and beckons. There's a moment where Val is like drinking orange juice out of the carton, and yes, Agador is just Nathan like, Lane hey, cup. like yeah. hey, and you're like, hands the cup. And it's just such a moment of like family. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Such a moment. There's such a sense of familial mm-hmm. affection in that one scene. And mm-hmm. so much of it is just the nonverbal stuff, mm-hmm. the performances of all the actors. Mm-hmm. And yep. that's why. I'm going to take my answer to this question. Mm-hmm. I think I've talked about Dan Fuggerman. I know I'll bring up Val Goldman <laughs> yep. again before the end of this because we have questions ahead. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm going to give a shout out for Hank Azaria. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. although I want to use to say upfront, yes, not Guatemalan. So this is problematic casting once again mm-hmm. from the 90s. Yeah. Again, different time, yep. different beliefs. Yeah. But by today's standard, mm-hmm. not an acceptable casting choice. Mm-hmm. Like, there has to be one Guatemalan actor who can play Agador. There has to be at least <laughs> one. Doesn't have to be Guatemalan. I mean, Hank Azaria is like you can, a Jewish Italian. So it's like, like honestly, you can we not change. just make him Jewish Italian? Like, did he have to be Guatemalan? Right. I think that what's always funny to me is that do you remember the scene where Agador is cleaning the pool in a thong? Yes. Yes. He's just in the background. <laughs> When that when the birdcage screens will screen on TV, they would like censor that. What? They would censor Hank Azaria out of the film because it oh was my God. obscene. I mean, to be fair, I don't know if that is Hank Azaria or if that is a packer, a double. But there is something swinging between his legs there in that scene, <laughs> and I've never like noticed that. But now I'll have to go back and rewatch. Oh, yeah. Scene. Like, if you watch, I can understand a little bit why that might be censored. Mm-hmm. Not because it's a man in a thong, but if you look, there's like something <laughs> whomping in his like <laughs> underwear that I was like watching and I was like, okay. Yeah. Hmm. But, um, so just like I want to point out that, <laughs> yes, of course, I'm sure there was some censorship that was just homophobia. <laughs> Because there is an abundance of homophobia out there, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But there, I did have had multiple thoughts myself of like, oh, there looks like a lot of Wang swinging around. <laughs> if there and was something to be censored, that would be the moment. Yeah, <laughs> and that's the one moment I think that was censored in the film. But anyway, it's not talking about censorship. That's yeah. a whole other can of worms. <laughs> We're yeah. going to talk about Hank Azaria because I think Hank Azaria, especially at the time, like the 90s was a moment where I saw Hank Azaria in a lot of films. He was in lots the of, Like lots yeah. of huge character work, mm-hmm. well-known for voices, well-known for... Mm-hmm. So I can see why Hank Azaria was a natural choice yeah. for the role of Agador, mm-hmm. again, at the time. Yeah. Talking about from the lens of, the, of a 90s casting mm-hmm. director, it's like, yo, someone who's famous for doing zangy characters which mm-hmm. honestly good character actors are always in demand so if you are a character actor wa- listening to this or watching this yep. you are appreciating i'm a character actor i would much rather play the big over-the-top character that ultimately steals the show yep uh, i agree instead of like when i was in hairspray i play edna and i would have no mm-hmm. other way because that's the role i wanted to play if i'm in when I was in Footloose, and had these was all like community theater, I was the Reverend. And that is a different kind of character acting. Yep. But both Gene Hackman and Hank Azaria are both playing a very over-the-top Broad. character yeah. in this in this film. And yep. to me, like I think that his talent of like, first of all, maintaining the voice the entire time. 
because <laughs> there are some movies I've seen. Good well, evening. Uh, I have Agados Papakis. <laughs> yeah. The, the, it's just, he's just such a good physical humor mm -hmm. presence. And when he's mm -hmm. dancing to Gloria Stefan, like near the very yep. beginning, it's just such a like, yep. That's the character. It sets the character so well, and you don't have to say anything. No guarantee. To add nothing else. Oh, and it's, yeah, it's just the aspirin with the A and the S scraped off. Oh, God, that's brilliant. Yeah, oh. I know. Just, uh. Like, he has great comedic timing. Like, him just doing, like, the one of the best scenes of the whole movie is him, Robin Williams, and Dan Futterman in the kitchen. Right? Like, he's trying to do the soup. Yes. Uh, you got Dan Futterman trying to get, the, to get out the door to do put the note up for Catherine, the mom, or yeah, like Christine Baranci's character. And, you know, and, and uh, Agador's melting down in the kitchen because he only made the horrible pesto sweet, sweet, sweet and spicy. Sweet yeah. and sour peasant soup. Exactly. Like he made up. I made it up. Yeah, I made it up. Right? And the whole thing of Ramu's doing the shut up, shut up. And they're yep. falling. And it's just like the comedic it's, timing of that scene is something that is so hard. chaos. It's to do very like organized chaos. It's yes. reminding me of like very old comedy. Like I'm very thinking old. about like I Love Lucy yes. and oh yeah, um, very, like very a lot like Stooges. very vaudeville, yeah. very Dr. Stooges. Shrimp. <laughs> and then he just and what I love is yeah. we pair that scene up with the dinner scene that is so like quiet and yeah. the moment where they all take a little bit of soup and then all reach for the bragging unison. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, the That's, comedic timing within yeah. every Ooh. aspect of it is yeah. so good. Mm -hmm. it's, it's just so good. I think that Hank Azaria brings that kind of physical humor and over-the-top characterization to the role. So although Him I disagree tripping with coming the, to the door because yes. he has to wear oh. shoes. Oh, oh, one of the best Lord, calls ever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, so I, I think my shout-out will be Hank Azaria. I agree. Um, I agree. That's with, with my caveats and fine print. Still Hank Azaria. Yes. Because I honestly, exactly. I can't give it to Dan Futterman. He's got too much of a punchable face. And Callista <laughs> Flockhart is not in it enough and kind of no. doesn't give enough yeah. for me to but really... she's funny when she is, when she does have her moments. Yeah. She's funny, she's present, and she's everything that the role is requiring mm -hmm. of her. Mm -hmm. And in a modern adaptation, I'd almost want Barbara to have more of a role mm -hmm. in the story. Because in this, she's yes. kind of just the Juliet who's kind of she, just, yeah, she's there. just there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, her best she does a good scene job, is that first but scene she's just there. with her on the phone where she's doing the whole, like, well, has he been tested? Yes, and I've been tested. Like, that first dynamic of yeah. her and her parents is her best scene because she has the most to do. But the rest of the movie, she's kind of always stuck at the background reacting to situations. Which is unfortunate because she does do a good job. She does oh, a great job. If anyone knows the, uh, the, I think it was early 2000s film version of Big Summer Night Dream that has Kaliska Flockhart as Helena. Mm. Oh, she is incredible! It's like Stanley Tucci as Puck. Yeah. Crow oh, dang. Okay. Okay. Yes, I've seen that. this one. Yeah. Yes. It's it's such. She is the reason I love Helena as a character because she did such a good job of like the <laughs> moment where she's realizing that she can like get Demetrius. Maybe she's walking a bike through the rain, and then the crazed look in her eyes. She's like. <gasps> I'll tell Demetrius of their plan. <laughs> and then, like, it's just such a moment. I'm like, oh, bitch is crazy. But you know what? Helena, we've all been there. Listen, I will say, job. Kate Winslet, Calissa Fokker were both my young childhood crushes from back in the 90s, man. Oh. Like, like, both of them stunning yeah. people, stunning actresses. So yes. we are just like, yeah. damn. Okay, I'm hooked on both of you. You're, fa you're fantastic.
So, but yes, definitely would need more to do. I mean, even like in Lacage, the, the role of the daughter is very downplayed. She doesn't show up till Act Two yeah. when the family shows up, which is weird because we get because we, we get a song all about her with Anne on my arm. Well, we don't get to meet Anne until Act Two. So there's a problem with that storyline there. We, we definitely need more of Anne or Barbara. Well, and just like you the brought up, is. she's even more fleshed out in the birdcage. And yet we, yeah. I would agree as well. Mm-hmm. Like I would so all three of us agree. She does yeah. still does not get enough screen time no. as a character or enough fleshed outness yeah. to her character. Agreed. And that's also why I don't really shout out Christine Baranski much as I love her much as I think she did a great job she is also the cameo role yeah and I will not shout out a cameo role just because again she's on the screen for maybe five minutes the entire yeah. movie it's a fun five minutes fun it five is. minutes but I think that we can mm-hmm. uh, I'm happy with my choice to bring up some issues and talk about what was good exactly yeah. I love that and let's get into our favorite production element of or design element of the show or the film <laughs> And I mean, I mean, I'll start this one because I will say for me, my favorite is the costume design for mm. this. And I, unfortunately, I don't know the name of the person who did the costumes. I'm looking on Wikipedia and I can never I couldn't find them. Oh, OK. Which is too bad. So, you know, but I will say for the, just the fact that this this film was so well designed costumes. And it's Anne Roth. Anne Roth. Thank you. Anne Roth. You were fantastic because first of all, you have to do all the stage costumes for, yes. for all the drag performers. And Nathan Lane doing like the Judy Garland look, the tramp look, you know, kind of like the Norma Desmond design look. All that, like like all the costumes for the drag show are just stunning. But then I know she also, did a good job. She did so good. But then you also go into the real world, these situations where you gotta cover a whole wide spectrum of the journey these characters go on, where you see Albert in his natural <laughs> a day, daytime pink kind of that bubblegum pinky or pastel pink attire when he's going through the market and you have Al- albert armand in that kind of mm-hmm. pad that like 90s versace look with like the open shirt with the undershirt look going and then you have gene hackman who looks like your stereotypical senator with Diane <laughs> so i guarantee was modeled off of hillary clinton because this was mid 90s oh you know, definitely like you, just looking at that background image of her there you, she looks like Hillary Clinton in this. So kind of, like, yeah. Yeah, like she got the hair. She's got that wide-shouldered kind of straight-cut look to her. Even Val is dressed completely differently from his parents, where he's northern prep school look with, like, the golf shirt, you know, the pant, like, kind of like the nicely pressed pants. You know, he's very well put together, that type of thing there. And then even Hank Azaria with kind of like that zany... Where he has to go from like in, in that ill-fitting servant uniform to like his mm-hmm. natural speedo short look, like <laughs> just the journey you have to. And then also, then you have to dress Gene Hackman and Diane Weist up in drag. You know, yeah, it's just funny and just fun fine. It's just so good, yeah. And so like, so like Anne Roth just just such a fantastic job tying all these characters together and really letting you know who they are. And even as we talked about that scene where Nathan Lane comes out in the suit with the pink socks. And making him look so good, but it also so uncomfortable. And the same thing with like Robin Williams in his suit, mm-hmm. which I which makes it look like his makes it look like his, it was one of his dad's like suits. I guess it's I look, it, I look like my grandfather in this suit. Yeah. He killed himself when he was 30. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> like it's just perfect. Like I guess these costumes tell you so much about who these characters are. It's just so fun and tells you about the world and everything that's being lived in. It's just perfectly yeah. well-crafted costume design because costumes are telling so much about the story of who these people are before you even hear them talk. You know exactly what's going on with them. 100%. You know? so it's great. Yeah. So Logan, what about you? I'm like, again, not to repeat what we've said earlier, mm-hmm. but like ditto to all that. There's a lot of the design components between mm-hmm. the Keeleys and and the Dragon family, we'll say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, yeah, the Goldmans and the Keeleys, where it's like even the way they're, the glimpses we get inside the Keeleys' house mm-hmm. tends to be a little bit darker. Things yeah. are a little bit more basic, a little bit more uh, to quote the mother, severe, you know, like they're compared to everything at the Goldman's, which is over the top and beautiful and artistic yeah. and everything's kind of unique. That sort of juxtaposition I've really enjoyed between the two. And that goes right down to, just like you said, their costumes, mm-hmm. like Al- Albert, who is the, you know, you could argue is the quote unquote housewife mm-hmm. of it because she plays the role as that is in brighter colors even when she comes out as fake mrs coleman yeah. um, she is still in pink where yes the other mother is in yeah. uh, louise darker colors yeah louise yeah. is in darker colors it's, these yes. costumes i find are like everything is so mirrored yeah um, you know where one is more f- froofy and colorful the other one is more severe and has more lines to it mm-hmm. even in their houses the designs are just unique and different and i kind mm-hmm. of love that about that about the sort of tech aspects of the show yeah i love that i love that Graham. So, oh my gosh movie <laughs> movie <laughs> so, so mine is almost to me no surprise that i'm thinking of the lighting i adore the way that the different worlds are lit so when we're in the keelys it's dark it's austere everything's very like neutral colors and Mm -hmm. dimly lit Mm -hmm. and then we get to south beach and it's sunshine fluorescent the lighting has a kind of like it shimmers on the water and it glares into the camera it's a very gaudy world in south beach and you get that right from the very first shot where we're coming in over the water and we're going in and we're seeing the club as we get Mm -hmm. to the club we're passing by people in bikinis going by and all these jeeps and all this flesh and all this decadence Mm -hmm. and then we get into the we see the neon lights of the bird cage which (laughs) i think they dressed up the hotel carlisle of south beach really really well yeah and then we get into it and the club is dim but there's still that fluorescence to it and every scene that takes place in South Beach, I'm thinking about the scene where they're ha- where they're piercing the toast and like learning about <laughs> in, in La Cage. I pierce the toast in La Cage. That would be masculinity. The yes, song. yes. Um, so like fun. that scene is such a vibrant and we're like a tiger. <laughs> so good. It's just so the lighting can be really sex. How these two worlds, how these two families live in very different worlds, mm-hmm. and so it makes it aware that we are colliding together. And so, mm-hmm. and also the scene at the end, like the whole dinner sequence, is so very funny because it's the first time you're seeing the Goldmans in this dark, austere lighting. 
Yeah. But even then, we're choosing like to still have a kind of like reddish tinge to things. And mm -hmm. there, there is still yep. color. It's different colors, but mm -hmm. there's still color, but it's all dark. Mm -hmm. So it's like these two families are now mixing. And we're clear mm -hmm. that the color is present, but muted. But, you know, choosing those like dark red colors and dark yellows or just kind of like taking everything of South Beach and muting it down to the Keeley's level. Because it's like the Goldmans are trying to suppress themselves for the Keeley's level. And that's what I get out of the lighting, just the lighting choices alone. Yeah. And so that's always what I, what I, what I, what I thought of when I was looking, watching it. I'm like, damn, lighting designer did a great job. They I mean, did. Ditto again. <laughs> <laughs> And like yes. the more of these round tables I'm on, the more I'm just like, it's always lighting that I go to. Lighting is key. We can't, I mean, I mean, nowadays, the amount of conversations that are had about why are films and television shows so bloody dark? Yes. You can't see half the shit that's going on. I mean, House of the Dragon, there's a whole hot, sexy beach scene that's very incestuous and creepy in a whole other way. But you know, it's supposed to be this big romantic climactic moment on the beach. I'm and, sure they got climactic on the beach. <laughs> uh, but it's like a whole scene where it's like, so what's happening? It's so dark. I yep. can't see what's happening. Or, you know, season eight of Game of Thrones, where, you know, it's the big climactic battle at Winterfell. And half the time people are like, okay, who happened? What died? Like, can't tell because you made it so bloody dark. It's just it is bad. a trend right now in anything for more serious shows, yeah. I find. It's like, let's make yeah. it dark so we know it's serious. Yeah. But I'm like, it doesn't matter if you can't see what's going mm -hmm. on. You're not mm -hmm. interested either way. Yeah. Some of the best films, like Mississippi Burning, also starring Gene Hackman, is not, like, it's a dark story. But there are scenes that are very well lit. Like mm -hmm. that opening murder scene with the civil rights activists in the car. That is not done in the pitch black. The whole point is, shine the light on the horribleness that is going on around. You know, we're not going to hide it in the background. Yeah. You know? So, yeah. All right. Let's get into a deeper question here, which is in this adaptation, the screenwriter Elaine May chose to include the biological mother of Val, Catherine Archer, played by the wonderful Christine Baranski. In other versions of this piece, this is usually an unseen character, like in Lacage, make mention of let's invite mom. She calls and says she's not coming. And that's kind of it for her role in the story. Mm -hmm. But what, but in this case, she, as we said, she gets a cameo, extended cameo appearance, and it helps out in the climax by driving the getaway car for the Keeleys. So what did her physical presence add to the film? Do you feel it was a necessary thing to include her in the story? Graham, since you seem to have some thoughts on Christine Baranski, where do you stand on her inclusion in the film? So this is going to seem like a bit of a stretch, but I think that her inclusion in the film is absolutely necessary because it makes the th the film feel more cinematic. Mm. And this, again, like, hang with me for a second, because this mm -hmm. is going to take some mental gymnastics. I did stretch before this. I'm already with you, so we're good. Because <laughs> when you have a play and you're mm -hmm. writing for the stage, mm -hmm. as I'm sure everyone in this little room, this little Zoom yeah. room has done, mm -hmm. you don't want to add characters on stage that don't need to be there. Yes. You don't want to have, you don't want to like, this is the like shitty part of the industry, but you don't want to pay an actor if you don't have to, especially when you're young and you're new in your career and you're trying to get a play stage. I don't want to have an actor who's just going to sit there and be a part of the set, essentially. Mm -hmm. Yep. We like, we're no longer in high school theater where we just want to include everyone. No, it's like, we're like not. 
Let's do a one person <laughs> show because it's easy and I will write it and perform it myself. <laughs> and produce um, it and cause it. And produce it. And, and you know what? I'm going to direct it. All me. Uh, <laughs> and I think that in previous versions, it's fine to have, like, I, I love having a character that is referenced but never seen. I had one in my own thesis play that was mentioned a couple of times. Good we, never see, we never see Aunt Fiona. We just talk about her. <laughs> and in and I think about other t like the TV show Frasier, the role of Maris. We never see Maris, but we talk about her every season of the show, never seeing. And it's almost and in yeah. Will and Grace, there was Stan. We never yeah. see Stan. And I like having characters who you never see, but you can create this very complex lore around them because mm -hmm. the more you create, the harder it will be to cast. How are you going to cast these people after you've been like, Stan is supposed to be this mounting of a man. And like, like Karen keeps throwing little things every episode about things Stan has done or said or eaten or. Yeah. Things. And same with Maris. How do you find this woman who is fix every detail? You can't. So yep. having, I love having characters that are talked about, but not there because it creates a rich world. But when you're trying mm -hmm. to go from theater to film, I want it to feel like a film. I don't want to feel like it is. Just the stage. You don't want to feel like a play yeah. being done on stage. Because usually yeah. plays on stage can hold your attention better because there's the element of liveness that kind of finesses the mm -hmm. audience's attention yep. span, helps the suspension of disbelief. And don't get me wrong, there have been some great films that have captured theatricality. I think about The Humans, Carnage, mm -hmm. and August Osage County. All of these kind of capture the theatricality of their source mm -hmm. material while also being a film. But they also kind of they also add the cinematic quality to it of being able to move mm. from room to room, being able to capture moments that seem like they're impromptu, seem like it's just something yeah. you're seeing through the crack of a door, like you're a mm. you're a little witness. But in this world where we're creating a film version of something that has been a play, then a movie, then a musical now. We're leaning back into musical theater because in musical theater structure, you want to move through a lot of set pieces. And one, like, let's think of, like, let's reference Hairspray again. Welcome to the 60s goes between, like, four or five sets over the course of, like, a six-minute yeah. song. Yeah. And that's how fast musical theater goes, and that's how fast films should go. And I think it's also reference the producers, and we can do it. They do a really they, good job. In the film, in the musical, it's just Max Bialystok's office, and they just are yes. singing in the office. Yeah. and. Yeah. It's like, okay, that's fine for a musical yeah. for on stage, but on film, we're going into the street, then we're going into the taxi, then we're passing by Central people, Park. We're, we're in Central Park, and it makes it funnier that Max Bialystok is still there when we come back scenes later. <laughs> oh, yeah. Still, it makes it yeah. that much funnier because we capitalize on the ability for the camera to move. We can yes. take the audience with us and take us on a journey. So the fact that we go and see Catherine and we mm -hmm. see Catherine in the film helps to make this film feel more like a film mm -hmm. and less like a play that became a film that became a musical that is now a film again. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Love that. Logan? Where I'm at with that too is very much, again, I hate to repeat myself, but same, ditto, whatever. Mm -hmm. But I also, the way I look at it is I... What makes an interesting story for me, regardless of what kind of story it is, mm -hmm. is the stakes. I need the stakes to be high. And if you're going to add in a character who wasn't there from a previous adaptation, sort of similar to what Graham says, you need them to have sort of mm -hmm. purpose and whatnot, is I need them to elevate the stakes. Mm -hmm. And having the mom character exist in this adaptation 
really does elevate the stakes. Mm -hmm. And the moment where you feel that most tension is when she's leaving the voicemail on their, mm -hmm. uh, while the dinner's sort of happening, yeah. while they're waiting, and yeah. the Keeleys are there, and you see both Albert, no, sorry, Armand, and this is before Val. Albert comes out. You yeah. see Val and Armand both physically have a reaction as they realize, yeah. oh shit, if well, the could she Keeleys hear this, name. Yeah, if Albert's the Keeleys the hear this, yeah. we're screwed. Yes. And so it's that whole scene where that tension mm -hmm. is just bubbling mm -hmm. there. And mm -hmm. it's would that would not happen if mm -hmm. Christine Bransky's character was not in it. If they mm -hmm. didn't include mom, we would mm -hmm. lose that sort of forward nervousness that mm -hmm. every single one of those characters feels in that moment. Mm -hmm. And it's mm -hmm. such a delicious moment. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's fun because we do get mm -hmm. to show the what I'm going to say is the conservative characters here as being just so ignorant to what's happening around them because they're so willing <laughs> to believe the facade that's in front of them because yep. there is not a single moment in their yep. brains where mm -hmm. they go, these are two men. Yeah. You well, know the best what I thing mean? is like, Gene Hackman during that whole voicemail is ignorance. doing his driving, his driving story. Yeah, I saw the trees and oh, the trees were changing yeah. color. And it's the most boring story. Oh, yeah. I think they would pick up on the voicemail and playing the in the tension, background. Tension just yeah. builds to a juicy, juicy yeah. moment there. And yeah. that's why I I love it. I love it. Mm -hmm. Gene Hackman's story, I just, it makes me think of bag poetry reading. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, so yes. <laughs> oh, oh, very yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll say for me, I'm a bit more mixed on Christine Baranski in this. And well, how dare you? You're wrong. Uh, well, go I, wash your mouth out right now. <laughs> <laughs> don't be wrong. I love Christine Baranski. I just don't she believe steals the show know. in Mamma Mia all the way as a, as a, not, not Rosie, not Donna, Tanya. She plays Tanya. Oh, I know. Um, Rose Tanya is delicious. It's great. Uh, love her. But for me, I don't know what Elaine May was going for with this character because in the first scene we meet her in, she starts flirting and undressing. Armand on the couch and gives our Albert a look when he bursts into the office of what are you going to do about me mm. flirting with your man on the couch here? And he's not saying no to this moment because they're drinking the champagne. They're dancing. They're singing together. He's lifting her. She's undoing his shirt. And I'm like, is she supposed to be an antagonist of the story or is she supposed to be this like, she has that antagonist energy because she's clearly set up to be the foil to Albert. And it's like, I think what it would have been better is if she shows up anyway, even after getting the message, because she so badly wants to be there for Val that even after she's told don't come, she's like, well, fuck it. I'm still going to come because this is my time to, you know, be there for my child. Mm -hmm. And then versus making her because it's such a 180 flip where she goes from being antagonistic toward Albert by hitting on Armand in the office to then showing up in the house and automatically just being like, you know, happy, like happy Dory, like I'll accept whatever Val says about me, you know? Yeah. And, even, and even then when she leaves the voicemail, because she does the Val, Armand, Val, Armand, oh, hell, Albert, are you there? Like even in the voicemail, she's condescending to Albert. So I'm like, there's such a weird character flip that I feel like we're missing a character beat for her. And I think that's more down to Elaine May not plotting her out properly enough to give her 
the proper term where she's going to be the most a supportive yeah uh, she really person does to, do she, she do does, that. does a weird 180 where i'm like is she the antagonist is she is she, like what is she supposed to be in this story because it's way like I, the way i always interpreted that is that she just slipped into their old roles right like last time they were really yeah. together but she, she was knows pregnant he's with gay. the baby yeah she knows that he's gay and is with Albert, because she acknowledges that, are you still with Albert? Yes, he's in the waiting room. Like, like Armand sets it up that, like, no, I'm still with Albert. I'm still gay. So, like, why is she boozing him up? Why is she undressing him and playing with his chest hair? Like, what's yeah. the game she's playing here? Like, it's a very weirdly directed moment of the piece where I'm like, just have, like, if you're going to have the scene, have her say yes and maybe, you know, have Albert burst in on them as she's popping the cork in a very masculine way between her legs. Yeah, you know, that, yeah, but, the yeah. The scene just goes yeah. on a bit too long, and it makes me go, "What was your intention with this character? What is I, she supposed to be playing with here?" I think, like, part of what I see of the role of Christine Baranski or mm -hmm. Catherine in the film is almost to push towards that palimony scene mm -hmm. because we have to set up this moment of a make or break for Armin and Albert, and yeah. going back. The palimony to... scene doesn't come next. They, she, Albert drives back to the house to get his toothbrush. Yes. Then we, he leaves. Then Robin Williams goes with the palimony agreement. But he's also very upset. But he's also very upset from what happened with Cap. Yeah. True. So where I think that it was largely yes, I think that Catherine is used as a bit of a plot device to mm -hmm. first of all drive the stakes up for that final scene, which again I think is flawlessly executed in terms yes. of like we're at we're tightening the screws and we're getting we're feeling the tension build bbtqia plus community the gay and lesbian alliance against De defamation glad as is otherwise known praise the film for going beyond the stereotypes to see the characters depth and humanity the film celebrates differences and points out the outrageousness of hiding those differences so with all that being said the film is now nearly 30 years old dear god uh do you find that its representation of the LGBTQIA plus community still holds up. Could this piece be considered dated today? Logan. It's funny that it gets praised for seeing outside of stereotypes, mm -hmm. yet it also engages in portrayal of some stereotypes. I mean, I think of the characters of Agador and even <laughs> like Albert himself. They're yeah. both just stereotypes of what often is considered homosexuality that mm -hmm. quote-unquote flaming homosexual stereotype mm -hmm. which i'm not always pleased about and even though they step outside the box in a lot of their choices mm -hmm. they still have the drag characters portrayed in like native headdress prancing mm -hmm. around the stage you know like like there's certain aspects of it where you know it gets praised for stepping outside of stereotypes but yet also depicts other stereotypes mm -hmm. Yeah. which I find a non-binary identity is an old tradition that goes way, way back. Mm -hmm. uh, there is no, discuss no discussion of gender identity. This is just a discussion of sexuality. Now, is mm -hmm. would the film, I don't know if the film would feel too spread too thin if we tried to tack on gender identity, because I think that this film covers a lot of ground already. Mm -hmm. But that's yeah. something that is not brought up mm. at all within, like, we have no non-binary characters, we have mm. no, it's very much a you are gay or you are straight, and it's a very, yeah. like, in, in many ways, it's a very binary situation. So there is no discussion of 
other aspects of the queer community. There are no lesbians. There are no, yeah. you know, talks about like baby Armin is a bisexual character. I mean, I kind of always read the read the Catherine scene when I first saw the film as Armin was a bisexual character. Yeah, I'd buy that. And, like yeah, leaning more towards male, but you know, he had that time with Catherine and maybe there it was more of a fling than just a one night stand. And, you know, when I look back on the script now, I can see that like, yeah, it was one of those, like, mm -hmm. it was more of that, like one night stand or like a very mm -hmm. short fling that they had, if anything. And, but again, as a kid watching, I didn't pick up on a lot of those nuances, but I was like, Armin, I could definitely believe as being a bisexual character because he is in the relationship he's in the more masculine presenting mm -hmm, individual yeah. and you know and as such also has some stereotypes of being strong decisive and so that's why it's also refreshing when i see both armin and albert trying to figure out what it's like to be straight men uh, <laughs> it, when they're trying how about those dolphins uh, fucking a. Like, fucking a. A. <laughs> um, just, yeah, nothing straight it's like yelling yeah. fucking a right yeah Totally. Also, nothing straighter than butt packs in the locker room, but like, sorry, what? <laughs> what? what? Oh, my God. Calling out hypocrisy? <laughs> Who do I think I am? Oh, no. And I really think that what I find delightful about this is how much it shows toxic masculine culture to be such a no-fault system. It and does. That if you have even one strike against you, you are always like, again, that moment where Albert's in the suit is like Nathan Lang looks like, you know, pink socks aside, mm -hmm. every guy in a suit. When you're in a suit, like yep. you can be mm -hmm. tailored, you can make it look a way, you can have a yep. pattern suit or different material or different colors. Like, yes, 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 mm -hmm. all that aside, men in suits are men in suits. And it's a specific look that we're go that we were going for. And if you were to just look, once he like corrects his walking from the kind of like gate that he normally has with the hands out mm -hmm. and the yep. once he corrects to the John himself, Wayne walk. The John I just didn't realize John, John Wayne walk like that. That is <laughs> such a beautiful moment. But in, in the moment when he's sitting down and trying so hard to be straight, it yep. made me think of myself in the closet when I was in elementary school and being like I'm trying really hard to blend in with everyone. Yeah. And it's not entirely working. And so there's still I think everyone who has struggled with the closet, which admittedly is most people at some point in their life, knows what it's like to feel different from everyone. And tr mm -hmm. even though you're doing everything you can to fit in and doing all the same things the same as your peers, you know there's something different. And I'll bring up a name that might be controversial but brave to bring up in this space, but Sky Gilbert, I remember saying, mm -hmm. is like, there's a problem when you try and create this narrative that gay people and straight people are exactly the same because eventually the straight people are going to realize that we're not. Yep. And like it or not in this social, political, and societal structure that we find ourselves in, it is very heteronormative still to this day. And this, that being the case, straight people still have inordinate amounts of power in the social on yeah. the social stage. Mm -hmm. So we still put up with queer people being lambasted in terms of like, are they predatory? Are they mentally ill? Are they these are things that are in the news like yesterday? Or I'm mentally ill, but it's not related to me being gay. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just I think that yes, the film is dated. Yes, there are problematic components. Does it make the film less enjoyable? No. Was mm -hmm. it revolutionary? 
revolutionary for its time. I think the very the very like pivotal phrase here is for its time. Yes. Because it's also a very bad, I think it's bad business to look at art mm-hmm. of the past with the lens of the present mm-hmm. without understanding that it was a different time. Mm-hmm. That we believe different things. We talked about mm-hmm. different things. Things were just, again, queerness not discussed. Like, I'm not until, like, the only time I remember queerness, like, actually starting to be mm-hmm. discussed in a positive light that wasn't some mm-hmm. dirty little secret you push aside was after I was already out of high school. So we're looking at, like, 20 2012 to 2014 area i will date myself with that one (laughs) like that's when like all my way through school queerness was something that was a dirty little secret you got bullied for it and it's that you still get bullied for it but um that's the world that Mm -hmm. this film was creating Mm -hmm. in so the fact that it was it showed an openly queer couple and a healthy depiction of of a couple at that rate mm-hmm. yes, not yes. just completely gleaning into stereotypes yeah there were stereotypes but at the yeah. same time there are so many people like albert in the world in toronto alone there are so many people <laughs> like yeah. albert there are moments mm-hmm. where i'm like i'm fucking albert like yeah you need those pure <laughs> tablets graham i need yep. those i need my pure tablets i don't know i don't know if i'll make it through <laughs> um, and so i think that while it is dated, I think this is a pretty good... It still holds up, and as I watch it, I still have a lot of good substance to chew on. Yeah. And yeah, I can point out, it's like, oh, that's a little problematic. Oh, that's a little, like, I would change that. That's not right anymore. But overall, I was still thinking about this analysis of straight culture versus gay culture, mm-hmm. and the two worlds colliding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's what this film does. And if it starts a discussion, mm-hmm. great. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'll say for me, does the film, does this, rep- does this representation still hold up? In some ways, yes. There are other ways where, you know, we've become more refined over time. Like, I guarantee if they made it today, you know, we would definitely get more clear identification of how does Albert identify? Because yes. we never really get a proper definition because, I mean, the whole joke that we made at the beginning where we quoted the scene of, you know, because you're a man and I'm a woman, you're not a woman. Oh, you bastard, right? Yeah. Nowadays, we would never joke about that because, you know, Albert may very well identify as a woman. Ergo, or a non-binary. Or, or as non-binary. Or, some, or whatever. Exactly, yeah. or fluid, right? So, you know, like, I think the jokes about Albert and and, and Armand's relationship and that dynamic definitely would have been refined a bit more. Like, as we said, yeah. I would absolutely see Armand being portrayed as a bisexual individual versus just gay. And just yeah. like, like one way or the other way, gay or straight, you're going to pick a lane. You know, it's like, like uh, there's much more diversity in how you would refine who these characters are. Same thing with Agador Spartacus. You know, <laughs> you could absolutely make that character a trans character. Yes. Uh, in this, like, you know, like you could absolutely maybe, refine... Maybe maybe mm-hmm. fled a country where they would have been persecuted very harshly and that's why go. they're that's why they're in america right now there like i don't know could be yeah. a good story right and you can absolutely refine and and re- create and like once again in 1996 we have to re- like we like I, like the representation of homosexuality in the lgbtqi plus community in the media at that time was you know not as diverse as it is now i mean you gotta think will and grace came out right like i mean mid 90s this was when will and grace started coming out 
You had I'm trying to think what other big things. I mean, Angels in America had just come out early nineties as a play. It wasn't even like a, yep. it wasn't like a movie yet. You know, what's the other big play about the LG? Oh, I mean, La Cage came out in the eighties. Look, yeah, I know there's another one where it's all about the AIDS crisis. Oh, Normal Heart. Normal Heart. Thank you. Normal yes. Heart came out mid nineties as well. You know, so like we're just starting to get more into this world. And even then, like in the eighties when Lakash came out, there was talk about how you know they cast George Hurd. I forget the actor who played George yeah, in that yeah. one, but they both yeah. were straight men. They weren't gay. And, 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 no. and, and producers actively said, "Tone it down. Tone it down. Make it less flamboyant." tone it down, like make it as kind of passing for straight as we can. Mm-hmm. So then it sells the show to more audience members. Like like where this show kind of, like when this movie came out, it was absolutely revolutionary. We would not have Hurt in Glee doing his stuff yeah. in, in the end of the, in the end of the 2000s, you know, or, you know, Mitchell and Kim and Modern Family. As you said, there's a very clear model of, Armand and Albert in Mitch and Cam, like very, very much that. Like, like, this was a major stepping stone. And as Graham said, we never should poo-poo this piece because it, you know, is in our twenty twenty three as maybe a bit, like maybe not, maybe a bit dated, maybe not as current or as refined as we would have done it today. This is still very much an important piece that you know talks about loving the people no matter what you Mm -hmm. are, and just acceptance. And love and acceptance is the moral of the story here. And I think that's the biggest takeaway of the piece is just embrace the love and the love and acceptance of the piece is kind of where I would go with that. Graham. I also, I think that it's important to acknowledge that what you said was exactly right. This is a stepping stone. Mm -hmm. Art is a process of constant refining and constant criticism. And the fact that we criticize allows Mm -hmm. us to get better. That's why theater criticism and film criticism, as mm-hmm. much as we view them as just the tabloid things that you read in Now Magazine, yeah. is very important because if you don't, if you disregard the critic altogether, you're never going mm-hmm. to improve. And queer Ooh, plays are not- you put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> That's a good one. Oh that my God, I feel one. like I don't even listen to that one myself. <laughs> but- That's why you need it on a shirt. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it wouldn't, also, I can pair that with, it wouldn't be theater without all the drama. Exactly. Because exactly. oh. ag- anyone who's booking a production knows that there's drama. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but queer plays are not a new thing. Queer characters mm-hmm. in plays are not a new thing. Tennessee Williams. Yeah. Yeah. His entire career, all of his plays kind of skirted the issue of queerness, presented queer characters or ambiguously queer characters. And mm-hmm. it was kind of like a very pessimistic, I would dare say, like, in a way, this is a big. This one's a big stretch, but like a kind of post-apocalypse of queerness, where it's like <laughs> either someone has just died or the queer person is suffering and is in a decay por- portion. So, in a way, like we have Tennessee Williams showing queer trauma in a way, and audiences ate it the fuck up because they love <laughs> queer trauma to this day. Mm-hmm. Audiences are voracious for suffering gays, and so throughout the 20th Ooh, century, Broadway a statement. Broadway mm-hmm. is full of problem plays. In 1936, we have The Children's Hour by Lillian Hellman, where we have queer characters who mm-hmm. are very self-loathing and honestly and don't end happily mm-hmm. at all. Like their life falls apart as soon as they're outed. And mm-hmm. it's just it shows that the only way you can be happy is a straight life. And this is a play written by a straight white woman about queerness. And so it's all very 
cartoonish and caricaturish. Yeah. Yeah. And I think so. I think the birdcage is just a stepping stone where we've gotten far enough out yeah. of we're starting to see genuine depictions of queer characters in all of the <laughs> plays that you mentioned, Mackenzie. We have the normal heart. We have angels in America. We have will and grace like we're starting to see yeah. other characters that are queer mm-hmm. and not suffering and it's not necessarily like yeah there's still problem plays but it's not it has a different ending and that's what i think is different yes. about this this particular problem play is it has a different ending they choose to f- frame it in a way that is mm-hmm. positive and leans towards finding mm-hmm. acceptance which again is very cliche as well because the problem play a resolution though which is nice yeah so i think that Though this is not a perfect story or narrative, it is that stepping stone to where we are now, where now we are seeing genuine, real, lifelike queer characters that are, you know, again, not devoid of cliches to this day. Like every, like Mm -hmm. I remember seeing Grace and Frankie, and as soon as they introduced like the gay intern character, Mm I, as soon as I saw the costume design, I'm like, that's the gay intern. I know. Oh, of course. Like, it was very obvious. And then, of course, the first line out of his mouth was, so I tested this lube out by, like, hooking up with my ex. And then also <laughs> this person, I'm like, and promiscuity, there it is. Like, it's the promiscuous <laughs> gay intern who drinks iced coffee. But and the thing <laughs> is, I know those people. I know. <laughs> there is an element of truth, right? Like The thing like, is, uh, we can't ever eliminate cliches because... Yeah and stereotypes because they exist for a reason they are and honestly like if that's the life someone loves to live like who am i to tell them like you know what you're stereotypical you should read some descartes (laughs) or you should read more shakespeare like why but and what i also like about this film is that it doesn't really like depict like the like open relationship for queerness Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. which to like today Mm -hmm. is very much something that's like yeah it's like we're gonna try to like depict polyamory in, in queer relationships, mm-hmm. but there are some that I call like homonormative. Mm-hmm. Like we talked about it in company. Gay, gay people, exactly, who yeah. are like, we want the straight life. We mm-hmm. want the wife or like the married life, the kids, mm-hmm. the yeah. white picket fence. We want all mm-hmm. of that, but we're two men, we're two women, we're two non binary yeah. folks. Yeah. Like we, we don't want to live the life where we are the hedonistic party animal who's in the club like four yeah. nights a week. Like mm-hmm. we, we want to. I love the way you described that, the hedonistic party animal. Yeah. That I can that I cannot take credit for. That is definitely from a, an article I read years ago by Stephen Dirk, <laughs> I want to say. <laughs> and it's just it's, it's two major depictions of queerness in yeah. media. It's the homonormative individual, the pick-me-gay, as it were. The well, one who's like, yeah. I'm just like all of you, except I like dick. <laughs> uh, and yeah. then there's the hedonistic party animal who completely... And they get epitomized the kind of because of it. So let's look ahead. So now, yeah, stuff there. Really great series for some of the listeners. Yeah, so Tim Tatum here to come here. Yes, of Otto, is she not wonderful? We have a now that shows Kate being a counterculture has its perils, we'll say, as we're seeing right now. Yeah, there, but yeah, from was it, and then that was it. Out that came out, Project Canadian, the two big, mm-hmm. those are kind of the mm-hmm. Bone Creek with shit's up along, picked it up, flicks, uh, and that, yeah, and creation, uh, Cree, BBC, it was a series, yeah, it, it yeah. Well. It, very well, it did very, it, it was worth it, actually, likes 100%. I would recommend right. it, especially if you are any kind of a part of the LGBTQ community. Netflix, the now, now I walk, lockdown.
lots of it that is currently trying to be taken away from yeah. us. Mm-hmm. Again, not to get too political, but do things that I get in. I wasn't the same age. That's probably around this. Actually, I mean, okay, okay. I'm oh. at the top 12. I was about but I told you. You need to know a ball. It's terrible. I really can't remember. A queer relationship. So I think that, again, we've talked about a lot of problematic components, or you know, not a lot, but like some problematic components that are found in it that date this piece in the 90s. Mm-hmm. But you owe it to yourself as a queer person to watch this film if only to A, be aware, because again, we shouldn't avoid everything problematic. Mm-hmm. We can take a look at it. Like Canadian, but if you talked about it, it mean, different law and have her appear yeah. that, 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 that's great work of other they're all standards. Cool. It's never a bad thing to reinforce that, you know, like have these conversations. Both those yeah. people will love so, that. Yeah. Oh, I love good of this film vastly outweigh the problems and it's well worth if you want to have a good time if you like fun you should watch the bird cage because you will be quoting it with all of your all of your <laughs> friends because they're just so it's incredible music is from the pace beautiful it's just a and mm-hmm. lives any trend amount based around you know based on what mm-hmm. this is like and that's Dunkirk. a straight identifying person of the trio Go and see it because, once again, this is a story about acceptance and love, and we need that message mm-hmm. now more than ever in the world. Very like, I would send a copy of this to every right-wing political person in Canada and in the U.S. and all over the world, and go watch this film because your life goal should not be about restricting thing on the beach. And they were mm-hmm. lying. My beef days. Your lifestyle. You should be as a politician. Be passing laws and bills that was with conceptual so the everybody and make sure we all live in a safe world, but also make sure it is a world of acceptance and love and tolerance. Mm-hmm. And I think, and my hope is that Senator Keeley and Mrs. Keeley come away from their dinner <laughs> with the Goldman's, Coleman's, maybe being a little bit less anti-Semitic, maybe being a little bit more tolerant of the other side. I would maybe- agree. and also feel the heart they will also you know have that feeling too so for me i just go watch this film it's a beautiful who um who mm-hmm. and Matt Brin- right. and matthew Brin- mm-hmm. from Car- Compa- but as we have said it's a stepping stone it's an important stepping stone mm-hmm. and it is a star-studded cast who are giving a honest genuine performance and are not only no only the no could watch it you gone. It was you see it, but did you? Oh. Oh. Beautiful. Also, all them was so. That's it there. Before we go, let's all give our handles and sign offs. Graham, where can people find and follow you? So you can find me on Instagram at at Instagram nine nine nine. That's spelled G R A E M E, not like the cracker. Yeah. And you can find me on Facebook at Graham McClelland. Love that, Logan. You can find me on Instagram at it's me the C underscore hag. Yeah, that's about it. That's I all I got. That. I love that. If I follow me at Mackenzie Horner, all social media platforms, you can follow my musical antics over at Before the Downbeat, a musical podcast. We have yet to cover Lacage, but oh. Lord knows we will be doing that in the upcoming seasons. Who knows? Maybe there'll be some guest appearances when we do that episode. 
one never knows. But yes, we definitely will be covering Lacage at some point. It's one of those moving episodes that it gets scheduled every season and something comes up in it, and that's the episode that gets moved to the next season. <laughs> it's definitely one that we want to talk about very soon, hopefully maybe this season, if not for sure next season. Well, uh, but talking about. It so is. It so is. And I would definitely say I would love to see a live-action adaptation or film version of Lacage done on film. With, oh, that would be lovely. With And also get Harvey Preston to refine the book some more now that he can because once again he did it in the 80s and now he can mm-hmm. refine it now for film and it'd be great but there we go all right everybody thank you so much for tuning in my wonderful peoples cheers to you thank you for sharing this wonderful conversation with me and we will see you all in our next episode